0: Good afternoon everyone. I want to invite you to turn to the um, insert in your bulletin where I have some notes like I usually do. And I'm not going to read again uh, the the story from Matthew. Nafissa has read it for us already well and slowly. Um, But I have a number of footnotes. And for those of you who are new, uh, Christ the King has um, a retired seminary professor as its interim, interim uh, rector, so it kind of looks like somebody's lecture notes. And there are lots of goodies here that I hope that you will take away. And if you're inclined to put it in the circular file, uh, it would it would spare my feelings if you would do that once you got home, rather than on the way out the door. Right? Okay. Right. So, this afternoon, we are considering what is traditionally called the triumphal entry of Jesus. And this is continuing a series that we've been having on the Gospel of Matthew. And we have, over the course of one week, jumped from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, all the way to chapter 21. So we've done a giant leap to catch up with Palm Sunday. The most important thing to know that has gone on before, between the Sermon on the Mount and Palm Sunday, is there's a turning point in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16, verse 21, when Jesus uh, says something very disturbing to the disciples. He says, we are going to Jerusalem. Okay, that part isn't so surprising. They would go to Jerusalem quite often for festivals. Or He said, Where the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and suffer and be killed and on the third day rise again from the dead. Well, that seemed like bad theology to Simon Peter who immediately rebuked him. And twice more between 1621 and 21.1 we have Jesus telling his disciples let me say it again, gents, we are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will suffer and be persecuted, killed, and rise again from the dead. So in verse 1 of our um, uh, passage, which is on the first page before you, it says, And when they approached Jerusalem, that is an ominous moment in the gospel. They had been moving towards this for several chapters. And they came into Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus directs his disciples to um, arrange for a donkey procession. And this is a way of um, Jesus orchestrating his own fulfillment of a prophecy that pertained to Israel's Messiah. Very Very important to understand at this point that Jesus has decided no longer to hide his Messiahship. You see, he had to do that because everybody was expecting a certain kind of Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah that would come and that would be a a victorious king. He would conquer the Romans. He would establish the Jews um, as a nation, and he would rule over them. It would be a military victory. Jesus is now showing his hand through this image of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. What the crowd doesn't realize is that it's kind of... um, There are mixed motives here. In the minds of the crowd, he's the Messiah. They already had intimations of this, and they're going to hail him as the Messiah. When they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that's code language for the one who comes as the Messiah in the name of the Lord in order to defeat our enemies. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey is what a king does when a king wants to enter the city in a tone of humility. Um, There's precedent for this in the Old Testament. Um, When Jehu, in the book of 2 Kings, was announced as a king, um, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. um, Those are the the branches. Um, When uh, David returned to uh, Jerusalem um, after the defeat of uh, Absalom, he came uh, probably riding on a donkey. And so riding on a donkey was a sign, yes, that you were a king, but that you were a kind of a humble king. Um, Contrast what you see in Queen's Park across the street from us. There is a statue of um, a, a royal British imperial figure, and he's there on his horse on a high mount. And he towers above you, and you look at him, and you think, what an important fellow. You don't mess with this guy. He is uh, a conquering uh, ruler type. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Uh, You may have seen movies about this. It looks ridiculous. Uh, And I think it's important to to point out, is the donkey was a young donkey and was quite small, and so Jesus would have um, kind of awkwardly swung his leg over the donkey, and then his Jesus's feet would have been dangling just a few inches off the ground as he was riding this ridiculous looking creature that was going in a very dignified way. <whistles> <whistles> uh, it's just almost um, comical. And um, there's a whole lot of connotations that go with this. One of them is that Um, Jesus comes in a way that is immediately approachable to the ordinary person. No one would have been intimidated the way that they would have been intimidated if Alexander the Great had done this when he came riding upon his white stallion. Uh, This is somebody who, yes, he's the king, but my goodness, he's humble. Um, He's willing to kind of look ridiculous and to be accessible to the crowd. And so... um, The the disciples have gone into the village, and they have secured a donkey and a colt. Jesus has ordained this already, or perhaps God ordained it. There's no difference. It was all well orchestrated before. And now in verse 5, we learn of the prophetic fulfillment that Jesus is um, accomplishing when he rides into Jerusalem. And verse 5 is a little bit different. The quote comes, as many of you might know, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But the first line of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, or O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of uh, Jerusalem. But the first line in verse 5 is different. It comes from a, a verse in Isaiah, which also predicts a Savior. But here, a statement of rejoicing is turned into a sermon. The crowd is being told, Behold, Your king comes to you, humble, even mounted on a donkey. Well, if that message needed to be given to the original crowd, it also needs to be given to us. My friends, behold, your king comes to you, humble, even mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the male offspring of a beast of burden. Your Messiah is coming to you. I put at the top of the outline a statement from Martin Luther that captures the sentiment well. He is a peculiar king. You do not seek him. He seeks you. You do not find him. He finds you. You do not come to him. He comes to you. That part I added. Your faith comes not... Your faith comes from Him, not from you. And all that your faith works in you comes from Him, not you. My friends, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, has come into our world as a humble babe. He's humbly taught his followers. And now that he comes to be their reigning king, he's sitting on a donkey in the most humble, accessible way imaginable. And we are to hear the words, He's coming to you, lowly, riding on a donkey. Well, how is he going to be the Messiah King and conquer the world if he's riding on a donkey? That is the mystery that the disciples and the congregation, the crowd, will sort through over the next week. The crowd will soon turn on him. Well, we're told that the disciples went and did as as he told them, and they brought the donkey, and now comes the procession, and this is like a ticker tape parade. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, the saddle blankets, and he sat on them, and a great crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and they formed a parade, like a a military victory parade, where others are out in front and others are behind, and they lay the branches on the road like... uh, a red carpet gets rolled out uh, on the runway when a president or or, um, or prime minister gets off an airplane. The crowds roll out the red carpet with their palm branches and they follow ahead and behind him, shouting. And there's a lot in this phrase. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, Hosanna at the time of Jesus was Um, And it comes from Psalm 18, Psalm 118. Hosanna was uh, an expression of praise. It was kind of like saying, God save the king or God save the queen. It was a nice thing to say when you were excited. But literally it means, and note the significance of this, it means deliver, please. Deliver, please. And the name Hosanna is related to the same root that Jesus comes from. You remember we're told at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that this man will save his people from their sins. So here they are using a name that is like that of Jesus, and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is this Messiah who is coming in the name of the Lord. Save us in the highest. This is a way of saying, save us in the most extraordinary of ways. (laughs) Well, little did they know that their expression of praise and their cry for saving would be an answer to prayer in a way that they could not have imagined because as they will soon find out Jesus is not coming to sit on a throne and to um, bump Pilate and Herod out of the way Um, he's coming to save them to save them in a way that they never imagined to save them from their sins you know as I was reading this week um, I have been reading a dissertation in which a student reflects upon the preaching of Calvin and uh, also that of Luther. And um, Calvin and Luther, week by week, whenever they preached, they preached the love and the goodness of God. And it was as though that was the only message they had. God loves you. And here is this Christ, the Son of God, who knowingly is going to suffer punishment that we will read about and that we've already read about. And he is coming to answer their prayer, and they don't even know what they're praying. But the answer to their prayer is greater than they could possibly have imagined. My friends, we have a wondrous Lord. We have a wondrous Savior in the person of Jesus. And he has done infinitely more than we can ask or have imagined. And he loves you. And if he comes to you in humility, we should respond in humility. And to acknowledge the gift that he has given us in the salvation that he has wrought us on the cross. So Jesus comes into the whole city, and the whole city was shaken, we're told. We haven't heard that word since uh, Jesus was born. And the whole city was in an uproar when they heard that these magi had come to Jerusalem. They say, who is this? Um, Something's happening, we realize this, but who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet. Probably code language that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, announcing the Messiah. This prophet is not only a prophet, but he's Jesus. The one from Nazareth of Galilee. So my friends, the important lesson from this passage is that the Messiah has come. But this is not the triumphal entry. This is the untriumphal, super triumphal entry, if you like. It's untriumphal for being modest. But it's super triumphal in meaning that it's more than the conquering of a kingdom. It's the conquering of sin and death and the power of Satan. This is the establishment of an eternal reign, and Jesus does it by becoming the humble, suffering servant of Israel and the Son of God. You know, I have to confess that I tacked on verses 12 and 17 when I saw this passage coming up, because um, I've preached on the triumphal entry before, and... um, In my own uh, sin and doubt, I wondered whether I would have enough to say based upon the triumphal entry. Because if you're going to have a lesson from it, it's this. We ought to be humble, right? But that is so trivial. Um, This is not a lesson that we ought to be humble, as true as that is. We are witnessing the love of God as shown in Jesus' willingness to come into the city. And he comes humbly. And he knows. He has set this up. He is going to die for you and for me. No greater love has this than a man should lay down his life for his friends. And at first I thought that the clearing of the temple was sort of an extra, but actually it's the second of two stage acts. The first one, I think I've described as the Messiah's not so triumphal coming. And the second one is the Messiah's last housecleaning of his temple a foretaste of what he as the new temple will be like. You see, this isn't a Jesus who is acting righteously to dispel some robbers and bad guys from the temple. It probably is that. But this is Jesus sanctifying the temple and pronouncing kind of a final word on the temple, which will soon be destroyed. And indeed, in days, he is going to in himself be the new temple. And he's giving us a foretaste of what the new temple, which is himself, will be. Jesus entered into the temple and ejected all the sellers and buyers in the temple. He upended the tables of the money changers and the stools of those who sold pigeons and dove. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. Whose house? Jesus said, my house. Well, of course, in the original context, it was God's house. But here Jesus is claiming none other than to be God. And he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are all turning it into a cave of robbers. And there he's borrowing language from Jeremiah, where God's people were behaving on Saturday and Sunday, or on Saturday anyway, but they were being a cave of robbers on Monday to Friday. Jesus said, it's all the same. You see... um, The 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 temple institution at the time of Passover and other times was well organized. There was a big court of the Gentiles around the Holy of Holies, and Jesus is in that court of the uh, the Gentiles. It'd be a little bit like going to exhibition place, and there would be um, there would be stands and kiosks where you could exchange your money for Jewish money, and you could buy the sacrificial animals that you needed in order to present for sacrifice. But it had become a commercial enterprise. And Jesus probably wasn't so much picking out this person and that person for being corrupt, as he was condemning the whole thing. He said, your worship has become mercantile. One uh, scholar by the name of Bruner has summarized it well, and he said, commerce and worship do not mix well together. Uh, There was a, a kind of a money thing. And I had to laugh as I thought about this because earlier this week I've been lamenting and just kind of worried about the fact we haven't been taking up a collection at Christ the King in months, years. I mean, how are we going to make ends meet? We should be passing the plate, not that we make a big deal of it. <laughs> but here they were overdoing it. They were mixing money far too far too much with worship. <clears throat> and we're going to pass the plate before long, folks, but we're going to do it in such a way as not to focus on the money. That's that's what swindler churches and swindler people do. We are going to uh, do that as a way of just keeping, keeping house, but they went far too far. And the lesson continues when we look at what comes in verses 14 to 16. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Well, you might think, well, so what? Friends, the blind the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. Uh, there was an Old Testament regulation that forbade the blind and the lame from coming into the temple. So Jesus is, is literally upsetting the apple cart. I mean, he's turning over the tables, and he's making a, a, a big scene in the temple. This would be like making a big scene not in Kenora, Ontario, at some uh, you know, uh, local political gathering. This is, this is like Parliament Hill. You go to Ottawa, and, and, and you, you, you make a demonstration on Parliament Hill. You're forcing the government's hand. You're forcing the religious leader's hand into doing something. And along with it comes a lesson of the kind of new temple that Jesus is going to establish. The blind and the lame came to them in the temple, verboten. And he healed them. And it continues, this note of mercy and this note of kindness and this note of charity and openness. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things which he did, And now children are introduced, and the children who were calling out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The religious leaders were indignant. This is the house of God. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus responded, sure. Have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babes you, God, have ordained praise for yourself. This is similar to what it says in Luke's rendition of the, um, of the triumphal entry when the religious leaders there also, the Pharisees, say, stop the crowd from saying these things to you. They're just, it's blasphemous. And Jesus said, well, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones are going to start crying out the same thing. And so here Jesus is foreseeing a whole new institution in which the blind can come, the lame can come, the humble can come and affirm him as king, and the children can babble and say things that they barely understand, and this is ordaining praise. You see, earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12, Jesus had a throwaway line, and he said, someone greater than the temple is here. It's in one of the passages that I think that I have given you as... uh, unofficial homework. no one's going to no check your homework. but on the last page, Matthew chapter 12 verses three to eight, Jesus's point is about the Sabbath, but notice in verse four, the very last line that's underlined. He entered Jesus says, "Do you remember how David entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. I tell you verse six. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Our friends, Jesus is turning the tables over in the temple. The temple will soon be destroyed, and he's going to prophesy that in a few chapters. But by Friday, come, by, by Friday and Sunday, there will be a new temple, the body of Christ. We are the temple of Christ, and he is the one who is the focal point of our worship. So we get here a wonderful foreshadowing of the passing away of the old institution and the coming of the new. My friends, the major lesson has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with us. But still, some regard it as... Um, inappropriate for the pastor to let people completely off the hook. And there's no question that there's a lesson on humility here. And it's one that we would do well to take to heart, but not at the expense of taking away um, the lesson of the humility of the Lord and just letting Jesus do what he is going to do for us. Maybe that's where the humble part comes in. It says on the back of page uh, three, or the middle of page three, under humility, Alan Hood said, the most humbling thing one can do is to look upon how Jesus responded to suffering and mistreatment. It's in the different font on page, um, sorry, it's on page three, under humility. The most humbling thing one can do is to look upon how Jesus responded to suffering and mistreatment. His whole life was ordered around the attribute of meekness. It was not, it was his greatest pursuit From the moment he was born, the father was contemplating his own humility in the person of his son. Love would be openly displayed as Jesus went lower and lower. Anyone who truly looks upon the man Christ Jesus and his meekness will be left staring at the great mystery. How can one so strong and so tender as he stoops so low? Looking upon Jesus is the great sanctifier to areas of pride and anger. In the human heart, there's an example to follow, but there's also an example to accept. This is a humble man who offers you eternal life, and that comes through faith in Jesus. My friends, we have a wonderful Savior. He's come to you, and now is the time for us to accept him as the humble Messiah who will die for us and win us the salvation that we could never win ourselves. Amen.